Well, good morning, Cornerstone. It is good to see you again. I'm glad to have you. If you are a guest, welcome with us. Um, if you, uh, I would like to invite you to point your Bible to the Gospel of John. It is my honor and privilege to be back with you again in the Gospel of John. As you know, we took a break from John, and now we're back in John. We're going to be in John chapter 6 this morning, John 6. We're going to pick up where we left off last week at verse I think 16, and then I'm going to read all the way down to verse 29. I will uh, pray, give some application, some explanation, and uh, then we will wrap up with a little bit more prayer at the end. So 45 minutes or so. Glad to have you. John chapter 6, beginning at verse 16. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea got into a boat and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark. And Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea And coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there. And that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that the disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into boats and went to Capernaum, seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life which the Son of Man will give to you. For on Him God the Father has set His seal. Then they said to Him, What must we, be, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in Him whom He has sent. Let's pray. Father, I want to say thank you once again for reminding me of my ineptitudes and unworthiness to stand behind this pulpit and to preach from your word. Thank you again for reminding me that my words do not contain eternal life. Only your words contain eternal life. 
and ask that you would now send your Holy Spirit to come and to minister to us through his Holy Word and to teach us and to convict us. May we look into your Word and see our sin and to see our Savior who died for our sin. May God be praised in the preaching of his word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Come get your God moment. That was the tagline of an advertisement I received some years ago promoting a church service happening near where I lived. And I read this advertisement and I was bothered. I kept thinking about it for a couple of days. And it didn't really make sense to me why I was so bothered by this ad. I'm not against advertising church services. That's fine to me. But something about the language in that ad troubled me, irritated me. So a couple of days later, it hit me. Come get your God moment implies that God is something of a commodity. You need God. We have God. Come get your God moment. It sounded like they were using God as a means to get something, a moment, an experience, an encounter. I don't know if that's what the advertisers meant. I hope not. But that is what it implied. Last week we saw the Lord Jesus take five loaves of barley bread and two fish from a little boy's lunchbox and feed a crowd half the size of Piqua. It was a miracle. 10,000 people ate to their fill. The Lord created food out of nothing. And when they were done, they gathered up 12 baskets full of leftovers I made the case last Sunday that I think this miracle of Jesus feeding the 5,000 with loaves and fish was not really about Jesus being the provider for hungry people, but being the provision of all people. I think Jesus made bread for those people to teach us that he is bread for all people. Well, that was... My point last week, the crowd didn't get what Jesus was doing. They saw Jesus as some sort of means to an end. I mean, you you have to understand, here's a guy who heals the sick. Here's a guy who provides food for the hungry. He meets all of the felt needs that we have. And in verse 15, they try and take Jesus and force him to become king of Israel. And the tendency to turn Jesus into a means... To an end is not unique to the first century crowd. Of course, we all feel that. We all do that. We all turn God into a commodity. We all treat God as if he were a genie in a lamp, which we rub with prayer. I don't suspect that we intend to do this, but we all still do it. And God is merciful to us all the more. So I asked you last Sunday to evaluate your prayers Evaluate the means uh, of your prayers toward the end of your prayers. Like, what is the goal of praying? What is the goal of asking the Lord to deliver you? What is the goal of asking the Lord to heal you? Why do you want to be delivered from financial instability? What is the reason 
These are fine things to pray for, but what is the reason? And the, the question that convicted me then and still now is that what does it say of my priorities when I pray more for deliverance than I pray for faithfulness while I wait for deliverance? Well, that has been the effect so far on me as I've been studying John 6. I hope it has been good for you. It's been convicting for me, but good for me. And I just want you to know before we take on our passage this morning how deeply grateful I am as your pastor for the privilege that you provide to me to preach from God's word and to be confronted with my own sin as I preach it and to repent of my own sin as I preach it and to be grown into maturing into the Lord alongside you. If you are ever convicted by any passage that I preach, I want you to know you have a comrade in arms. I am also under the Lord's heavy but gentle hand. The main point of our passage this morning, as far as I see it, is found in verse 27. So if you want to look at that, uh, you're welcome to read it again. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has sent his seal. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures. By food, of course, Jesus means bread. And by bread, of course, he doesn't mean the bread that comes from the oven, but the bread that comes from heaven. The bread that Jesus is, the bread of life. So here is my attempt at summarizing our passage this morning. Don't work for food that keeps you satisfied for a moment, but work for food that satisfies you forever. The idea is that if you spend your life serving the God of your belly, you will go hungry forever. But if you serve your life, if you spend your life serving the God who made your belly, you will be satisfied forever. So three parts of our passage so far in John 6, we have the beginning of the passage, Jesus feeding the multitude and the 12 baskets left over. The second part is Jesus walking on the water. And the third part is the crowd seeking to Jesus and Jesus responding to the crowd. So the point comes, the point of our passage comes at the end. And so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to work backwards. We're going to start at the end and work backwards. If you're taking my proclaimers class, you're not allowed to do this. You start at the end and then we're going to work backwards. Okay, so we're going to start... Um, with the main point, and then we're going to deal with the walking on the water, and then we're going to go to the beginning of chapter 6, and we're going to deal with the 12 baskets. So that's how it's laid out this morning, all right? Let's take a look um, at verse 22 to 29 once again. This is the work of God that you believe. Verse 22. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there, and Jesus didn't get in the boat with his disciples. They went away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came to the place where they had eaten the bread and Jesus had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there nor his disciples, they themselves got into boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. Now hold up a second. John tells us at the end of his gospel that almost everything Jesus did in his life and ministry is not included in this gospel. Which means that everything that is included in this gospel is immensely important. So the question is, why would the Holy Spirit lead John, the apostle, to give us so much detail about the efforts of the crowd to seek Jesus? 
The answer, I think, is in Jesus' response to their question. So they finally find him and they say, Rabbi, when did you get here? How did you come here? We know the answer. We just, we just read the answer. He walked on water. We know the answer. They don't know the answer. He came in the middle of the night. There was no boat. He walked across the water in a storm. But they don't know that. And notice, in verse 26, Jesus totally avoids explanation. One of the most well-known miracles of the Lord Jesus Christ, walking on water. You don't have to know anything about your Bible to know that this guy named Jesus, presumably someday, long time ago, walked on water. You don't have to know your Bible to know that. It's one of the most popular miracles that Jesus did. And Jesus gives zero explanation. Verse 26, Jesus answers them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you're seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. The tenacity of the crowd to find Jesus was driven by their appetite for food. Not their appetite for forgiveness. Not even their appetite for the Christ. They wanted more food. I think a little bit of this is lost on Westerns, Western, not Westerns, like John Wayne Western, but Westerners. But the bulk, I think we, we don't really, I don't know if we can really get what was happening in the first century. Yet, the first century Palestinian, Jesus' day, spent most of their time and energy and thought about the acquisition of food. Either cultivating land and harvesting it, or taking care of animals and harvesting them. It's that way in the majority world today. We just don't get that. I mean, has it ever occurred to you just how strange it is that we walk into a climate-controlled concrete box and we exchange green paper for cellophane, clean-wrapped parts of the flesh of an animal that we never met, that we never bred, that we never fed, that we never bled, that we never processed? And we eat it. That's weird. That's not how it worked back then. And so if you find a guy who can make you food for free, so that you don't have to spend all your time and energy getting food, you keep that guy around. You make him the chef of your house. And that's what they were doing. They wanted him for themselves. I mean, he's better than Moses. You understand, even in, the, even in the wilderness, they had to get up in the morning and go gather their food. But here comes along a guy who provides, he has them sit down on the grass and he, he gives it to them like a waiter brings them food with no bill at the end. This is tremendous. Of course, they wanted him to be king. So the Lord responds to their seeking. Verse 27, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus said, this is the work of God, that you believe on the one he has sent. So once again, we find Jesus Christ making the needs of hurting people in this case, hungry people, all about himself. Jesus, we're hungry, we're tired of working. 
And he makes that issue about himself. This isn't the first time you've seen this in the Gospel of John. Of course, you remember from chapter 4, chapter 5 rather, the paralyzed man, you remember him, Pula Bethesda, Bethesda? That paralyzed man, 38 years of paralysis, Jesus made that about himself. The issue of the woman of the well and her shame, he made that about himself. If that hasn't offended you yet, wait till we get to the blind man in chapter 9. That will round it out for sure. The Lord rebukes these people. Don't work for the food to feed your physical appetite, friend, because you have a much greater need than physical food. You need to be forgiven of your sins. So the crowd was hoping that Jesus would give them an easy life. But he didn't come to give them an easy life. He came to give them an eternal life. They wanted free food. What they needed was free grace. They thought they needed to eat. They really needed to believe. Food will satisfy you for a moment. But then you will be hungry again. Christ will satisfy you forever. Affirmation will satisfy you for a moment until you need it again. But Christ will satisfy you forever. Sex will satisfy you for a moment. But Christ will satisfy you forever. Power will satisfy you for a moment. But Christ forever. Children will satisfy you for a moment. But Christ will satisfy you forever. Jesus is saying, don't work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. Now, he's not saying quit your job. I want to get that clear. I hope you haven't misunderstood the Lord here. The Bible says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, that if a man doesn't work, he doesn't what? Eat. So you got to work to eat. We need food to live. Jesus is not saying, stop eating, Sinner. He's saying, don't spend all of your time and energy working for things that pertain to this life only. Things in this life, they are not ends. They are means to an end. They were never meant to be ends. Making things in this life ends. The Bible has a word for this. It's called idolatry. And idols... Never satisfy. Believer, you will spend the rest of your life training your soul to believe that idols will never satisfy. When we make things of this life ends of our life, they will destroy you. If you make power and respect an end in your life, it will destroy you. You will do everything you can to avoid humiliation. And people around you will not respect you. They will feel used by you. If you make approval an end, it will ruin you. And you will do everything you can to avoid rejection. And others will not feel loved by you, but they will feel smothered by you. If you make comfort an end... It will ruin you. You'll do whatever you can to avoid difficulty, but you'll end up bored in your safe life. If you make control an end, 
You'll never have it. You take whatever route you can to avoid uncertainty, but you'll live a life racked of worry. And God will send things like hurricanes to remind you, you're not in control of anything, brother, sister. Idols will never satisfy. These people were looking to Jesus as a means to one of those ends. And Jesus was not a means to get position. He's not a means to get respect. He's not a means to get approval from others. Jesus is not a means to get comfort, to avoid difficulty. And Jesus is not even a means to give you a sense of control over your life. I read an excerpt uh, from a popular Christian book on prayer. The author wrote, There comes a time when you must quit talking to God about your mountain and start talking to your mountain about your God. It's well written. It's Instagrammable. But it really depends on what is a mountain, doesn't it? Is cancer a mountain? Cancer's not a mountain. My distrust of God's providence in my life, that's a mountain. I will talk to that mountain about my God. I don't care about no cancer. Kidding me? I'm going to live for a billion years times a billion years free of cancer. I don't care about 20 years of cancer that takes my life. But I will not stand before my God and accuse him of some kind of unfairness toward me. It all depends on what we mean by mountain. God has set his seal on the Lord Jesus Christ. Meaning the Lord, the Lord is, he's, the re, he's sent from the Father. He's got the stamp. He's got, he's got God's stamp on him. He's the real deal. He's the one who will give you the food that endures to eternal life because God has given him that authority. And so we ought to listen to the Lord here and we should work to get more Christ in our life and not less crisis in our life. This is the work of God that you believe in Jesus. That is what matters. More than food, more than comfort, more than safety, more than respect, more than approval. Believe in Jesus for eternal life. And all of his other things, you get them thrown in. I love this quote from C.S. Lewis who put it, I put it in the worship guide. He says this, if you live for the next world, you'll get this one thrown in the deal. But if you live only for this world, you will lose them both. This is the first point, that you believe in Jesus. That's something to live for. Don't work for the food that perishes, but that which satisfies for eternity. Point two, remember who he is. As I said, we're going to go backwards. Go back to to verse 16, and we're going to look at this. Why is it here? Let's, let's, let's just read this. 
When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea. They got in a boat and they started to cross the sea to Capernaum. That was dark. Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat. And they were frightened. And he said to them, it is I. Do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him in the boat. And immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Now, I, I'll, I'll be the first to admit, I'm a little slow in the uptake. It took me a long time to figure out why this is here. What, it seems so disjointed. I mean, in my defense, it, Jesus feeds a multitude with loaves and fishes, gather up 12 baskets, then there's discussion about the bread of life in John 6, then there's discussion about eating Jesus' body and his blood. If that's not confusing enough, there's in the middle of all this, this tiny little section about Jesus walking on the water. And there's nothing at all explained or said about it. I mean, Jesus gives 30-some verses to explaining bread. And how many verses does he give us in explaining the miracle of walking on water? Zero. Even when the crowd asks him, how'd you get here? He just totally avoids the question. What an opportunity to show you are unlike people. I don't walk on water. I've tried. I sink. What an opportunity, Lord Jesus, that you could have used to tell these people, well, I just, you know, is it the shortest route, A to B? I mean, it's like as the crow flies, as Jesus walks. I don't know. I just walk across the water. But he didn't say that. And the reason, I think, is because this miracle was not for the crowd. This was something for the 12 disciples. We'll come back to that in a moment. Walking on the water is mentioned in three out of the four Gospels, and every single time it is mentioned, it follows immediately the feeding of the 5,000. These two things are connected. In Mark's account, Jesus gets in the boat, and the storm ceases, And then Mark says, when Jesus gets in the boat, the disciples are, his words, utterly astounded. As you might be. But then, this is what Mark says next. This was so helpful to me this week. For they, that's the disciples, did not understand about the loaves. There's something that they misunderstood about bread that was related to their astonishment about Jesus walking on the water. Here's what I think that connection is. So you study this out, you see if I'm right or not. When life and ministry gets hard, the Lord may do the impossible to remind us who He is. A hard wind blows, as it did on the disciples, rowing against the difficult waves. The Lord may do the impossible to remind us who He is. When there's not enough bread to go around, the Lord may do the impossible to show us he's enough. A couple of things to note about this passage. I want you to see how the disciples are not afraid of the wind or the waves. If it were me, I'd be terrified. I would be 
some part in the back of the boat, curled up in the fetal position, crying like a baby. It's nighttime, you're on the water, there's wind, there's waves. I'm thinking we're going to die. But the disciples, most of them are fishermen. The Sea of Galilee, this is, this is a common thing that happens. Listen, you don't get on a boat when it's nighttime and sail if you don't know what you're doing. These guys knew exactly what they were doing. They're not afraid of the wind. That's a different story. Look at it. What are they afraid of? They're afraid when they, they've seen waves. They've never seen a man walk on waves. That's what they're afraid of. That's what has them utterly astonished. In verse 20, Jesus reveals himself. It is I, do not be afraid. And one of the reasons why, it's one of the reasons why I think this whole passage is about Jesus revealing himself. So they're happy to take him into the boat. And notice in verse 21, immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. There's no mention of the calming. There's no mention of Jesus uh, rebuking the ways. Perhaps he did. But John says nothing of it. Because that's not the point that John is trying to point us to. The point isn't that Jesus took the storm away. The point is that Jesus got in the boat. And at the very moment that he's in the boat, they're at the land. This is about remembering who Jesus is. And this is why I think the walking on the water is connected to the feeding of 5,000. These stories are both... They have the same message. They're meant to remind us who Jesus is. So go back to the beginning of chapter 6. There's one more thing I want you to see back there. Verse 5. I have it in the overhead up here. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming to him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread for all these people? And he said this to test Philip because he himself knew exactly what he was going to do. Philip said, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough. For each of them to even get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a boy here who has five five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? So why why does Jesus turn to Philip and say, What are we going to do here? we got this food crisis on our hands. And then, of course, verse 6 tells us Jesus is testing Philip. Jesus knew exactly what he's going to do in this moment. But old Phil, he's like many of us. He does the math. It didn't check out. There was simply no way to feed all these people. It is simply impossible to feed a crowd of 5,000 men plus their wives, plus their children with five loaves and two fish. Even Captain Obvious comes along and says, yeah, it's not enough. Five loaves, two fish. Math doesn't check out. There's no way to feed 10,000 people with five loaves and two fish. It is an impossible thing. And they were right about that. But what they had forgotten, what they had forgotten is that the one who made every molecule in every loaf of barley bread and every molecule in every fish who's ever lived was standing right before them. The one who upholds the universe by the word of his power. The one that keeps every atom clung together in the entire universe is standing right there. And they're thinking about change. We don't have enough money. (sighs) 
The Bible says Jesus doesn't use asphalt for his roads. He uses gold. You think he's got enough money to feed these people? he got enough money. This is not a crisis. This is an opportunity to believe. When we see that there's not enough to go around, Cornerstone, we bring the Lord what we have. We trust Him. We remain faithful to Him. And we watch Him make a great name for Himself. Skip down to verse 12. And when they had eaten their fill, He told the disciples... Gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. 12 baskets, 12 disciples. Coincidence? Seems to me the sovereign Lord of the universe does not deal in coincidence. Twelve baskets, one for each disciple. What do you suppose that means? Could the Lord be telling his disciples, There will always be enough of me for you? Whatever ministry you find yourself in, fellas. I will always be enough for you. Whenever you feel like there's not enough to go around, you're spread thin. Jesus will always be enough. Here's where we'll wrap. When Jesus is your bread, friend, Jesus will always be enough. The life of The winds of your life, they may blow and they may blow hard and rowing against the current may be difficult and you may find yourself caught in a boat in the middle of a storm in the middle of the night. But you have to remember who he is. Jesus is enough. And here's the great challenge set before us. To remember that. To remember that. Remember who he is. We always tend to acquire resources and people in our lives to satisfy our appetite for admiration and approval and comfort and control. And these are not worthy ends. These are food that perishes. And we shouldn't work for those things. We should work for the food that endures to eternal life, the food that Jesus is. So listen. When the diagnosis lands, Jesus is enough. When you're tired of being single, Jesus is enough. When your marriage has no love left in it, Jesus is enough. When the floodwaters rise, Jesus is enough. When a hurricane threatens, Jesus is enough. When you can't see any way God would forgive you of that sin, 
Jesus is enough. This is the work of God, friend, that you would believe in him whom the Father has sent. Let's pray. Lord, I confess with my brothers and sisters to having treated you and acted toward you as if you were not enough. I confess to you the sin of looking to something like comfort and affirmation to be a gauge on whether or not my life is good. Forgive me for treating the one who bled for me as if he were not enough. Forgive us of this sin and comfort us, Lord. For that sin and for all the others you have went to the cross to show us once and for all Not only can we be forgiven of that sin, but that we can know confident Jesus is enough. May those words always remind us in times of calamity and crisis. May those words be on our minds and on our lips when we get in airplanes and go to a 99% Muslim country, Jesus is enough. Carry us this week. Sustain us this week. Be enough for us this week. In Jesus' name.